I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Willy Bundermeier on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Very fine. Wonderful to be here with you. Nice talk, to see talk you. With you. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Willy Bundermeier Sr., your dad. He was born in 1916, which would have meant uh, he was born during World War One, and he also uh, served in World War II. Mm. What was his life like, uh, and what was the situation of the vineyards and, and the winemaking during his lifetime? Well, he grew up uh, uh, in the vineyard with a family who did wine growing, as well as uh, some other farming, like doing kettles, uh, some wheat and barley, so a little bit of everything. And also our name, Meyer, means someone who runs a farm. Brundlmeier means someone who runs a farm and has access to good water to a well, to a fountain, so that when there's a drought, you go to Brundlmeier to get some water. Today, the people come to get some wine, but the water is still in the name, <laughs> and it's still very important for, for our production. But uh, what was the situation for Austria in the, the 20s, the 30s, 40s, I mean, in terms of vineyards and, and wine growing? Uh, it, it was compare in, in, in the economic crisis of the, uh, of the 30s the wine growers were relatively well off uh, we sold the wine in 300 liter cask to to restaurant and uh, so you would sell to a restaurant a whole cask of wine yes so that, that was usually it was very rare to, to bottle and uh, uh, usually most of our wine was sold in 300 liter cask. What kind of cask were those? Um, most of it was acacia. Oh, okay. Because it was less expensive than oak. Also more neutral. Uh, it didn't influence the, the wine so much. Both uh, woods grow in our region. So it was just here and what it was used. And uh, it was used for fermenting and maturing the wine and for selling the wine. So your your dad had to uh, join military service during World War II. He came back, and then you were born in '52. What was the situation uh, in your area 
post-World War II? Uh, our area was occupied by Russian troops. It was a difficult situation. Many of the vineyards were destroyed. Some vineyards were kept by prisoners of war. Many of them French from uh, uh, wine-growing areas. And they, at the time of war, they were very lucky to be in the vineyards because also during the war, wine-growers were relatively well-off. Men were uh, often in, in the, on the front in the war. And the wives were uh, looking for the vineyards. Uh, French prisoners of war helped them uh, working the vineyards. And uh, some states, the men, men didn't return. The workers of the vineyard stayed in the area and married maybe later the wife. So there was a, a sort of French influence, sort of historically unexpected, but it was a consequence of, of the war. A, 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 a little bit, yes. So uh, wine growers help each other. Also my father went to the Western Front in France and tried to help wine growers there as much as he could, as, as much as it was in his uh, possibility. So it was occupied by the Russians until 55. So you would have been alive for a couple of years of that, three years of that. And what was the situation with some of the, the vineyards in terms of how we think about them today? With It was a very difficult situation because nobody knew whether you would keep, whether you could keep the vineyards or whether you would lose your property. In most other countries, in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, the growers lost the, their property and everything was nationalized. So this was a incredible insecurity. If you go out, work your vineyard, And you come back, you never know whether you are still whether it's still your your land or not. If you buy land, you don't know would it be still tomorrow your land or would you lose it. Uh, we were very fortunate that um, the Austrian government at that time was very clever that our left and right uh, politicians cooperated in getting a deal in putting Austria in a neutral position. They would not take uh, part in any war in the future. They would not. They would use uh, military only in a defensive way. And uh, they arrived to get a state contract. And it was the only country occupied by Russia which became free uh, after the war. And so... My parents and finally all my family now can be very happy about that. Because it was run, you know, there was a government, but there was strong connections to Stalin and the Soviets, and he could have decided we're going to nationalize the industries and the vineyards of Austria, and that would have meant all the vineyards would have been taken away, but he didn't do that. Uh, no, uh, that was uh, what happened in the other states of, of, of Eastern Europe, but not in Austria. During that period of time, did your dad add vineyards to what uh, became the family holdings? In fact, at that time, my parents made the most important decisions uh, of, our, of our family in all times, in my opinion, because uh, sitting together in despair, they talked and said, what are, what are your dreams? 
And my father said his dream would do to work the vineyards and do nothing but fine wine and give up everything else and concentrate on fine wine. My mother's dream was to make once in her lifetime a holiday. And uh, I said, let's, let's try it to make our dreams come true. And uh, that meant that they would give up everything which was valuable at that time, animal, land in the flat, rich, rich land, fat land, and acquire poor stony soils where they would grow wine with good quality. And the lucky thing was that these uh, high-quality uh, vineyards were, were very cheap in that time because nobody wanted them. The terraces and uh, the hillside areas were abandoned and only the easy land, the, the fat land, uh, where you could make large quantities in a short time on low cost. Uh, was uh, cultivated. So with very little money, they could uh, get land on uh, vineyards that are famous today, like the Heiligenstein, for example. And, uh, well, they pursued their dream. They did everything they wanted. My father made fantastic wine in a difficult time. Uh, he didn't become rich because it was the 60s and 70s were difficult years uh, in Austria. The time after the war was a slow building up. But uh, my parents were happy in the situation. My mother could take a holiday. My father could acquire reserves. He built up a vinotech with uh, his first wine, the 47, beginning with, and, and, and I'm still happy to use wine, a bottle from his collection. And we have today a collection, so back to 1947, from our most important vineyards. I took over in 1981. My parents were very happy that they had a successor. My sister became a physician, so... I had to do it alone, uh, but uh, I had my situation was now much easier than the situation of my parents because in '81 everything changed. The, in Vienna, we had a movement of the new Viennese cooking. People had suddenly enough money at home to go out. Uh, the Magazines and newspapers started employing wine and food writers. There was interest springing up and uh, suddenly you could sell good wines and the quality was appreciated. So whatever was difficult for my parents was easy for me. So the, the Russians leave in 55. Did your dad have any problems with uh, the Russians or was that smooth? Uh, that was dependent on the area and on the village and on, on, on the people uh, running that. And in, in Langenlois, we were relatively lucky that uh, the local Russian government behaved rational. 
it was, of course, it was necessary to give them what they wanted. So they came with their container and we had to fill up wine. But as long as they were happy with the wine, as long as the container was full after leaving, uh, they were happy and uh, didn't um, destroy anything. What happened in, in our other area, in our area, uh, it's, everything was uh, uh, went well. When you turned about 16 and a half, your dad said, maybe it's time for you to go get some vine growing experience in other areas of Europe. And where did you go? Well, first, the, the first experiences were in Langenlös at home. And the first trip abroad was uh, to Switzerland in the Valais region, in the Rhone area at the limit uh, German-French Switzerland in Sierre with extremely steep soils. Because the idea of my father, uh, which is, by the way, a very good idea, is that you uh, learn something in the, the best way if you do it with your hand, if you touch it with your hand. You don't learn by brain or by reading. If you touch it, if you do it, if you do it by hand, you get the closest possible relation. So the first stage was in an incredibly steep vineyard in Sierra where they had planted rare varieties like, for example, the res or the umanje. Um, there exist only, there exist only a couple of hectares of res, but mag magnificent tannic wines and everything made by hand uh, in, a, in a wonderful, beauty, beautiful landscape. So during the day we worked the vineyard and uh, in the afternoon we went up and uh, uphill and uh, slept on 1,500 meters in the Alps and uh, looked for the cows, which uh, they had. The wine growers had it well and, uh, and provided food for the cows. So I, I was back in the old family <laughs> profession where they had vineyards uh, and other um, uh, agricultural professions, produced cheese, uh, so that was very nice. In terms of doing things by hand, you know, that's something that you do at Brunemeyer in terms of hand harvest and vineyard work by hand. And was that uh, something that your father did as well? Or was there mechanization in an earlier period? They very early, my parents realized that you cannot do uh, everything yourself, that you have to split labor. And there were always enough people who were happy to give a hand. But if you want to teach someone how to do something, it's, it's a very good thing to show it, to teach it, to work half an hour with him, and then let him take over and go and do something else, to share work. So that's, uh, that's uh, a very important experience that uh, wine growing is uh, a teamwork. If you try to do everything alone, it's um, you, at some point you lose energy, you lose attention and focus, and uh, you always need someone to take over, to support you, to split work. So teamwork and a good mood is very important in, in, in winemaking. At one point, you went to France to do a stagiaire there in a vineyard. How did that come about, and what was that? Uh, 
Well, the next year after having been in Switzerland, I'd already learned uh, some French. Uh, my father asked me, and I was allowed to, so I loved it, to go to Burgundy, but not to the prestigious uh, wineries, but to a small winery. Uh, the wine grower was called Jean Lamy, who had to support large family with land that was not so pre it, it was not a Grand Cru land. It was high up uphill and uh, Saint-Aubin had small appellations. And in order to get some additional money, the family was also working for the rich, rich barons, <laughs> for the aristocracy, the proprietors of, of Le Montrachet. And we had fun working Le Montrachet with the horse. <laughs> so you, you plowed Le Montrachet? Yes. Wow. And uh, by the sides working their own vineyards in Saint-Aubin, which I loved very much uh, as well. And uh, even the Bourgogne Aligoté. <laughs> and uh, the Lamise made also a magnificent Pinot Noir. So uh, it was a very, very nice and good experience in this small village. So you came back to Austria in the Comptal and you took over the family winery in 81. Did you work with your dad a bit before that? Uh, I uh, worked very often with my dad and we went often together to the vineyards, in particular at the harvest season. That's one of the most important decisions in our profession, what time to pick the grapes. And uh, that's not an easy decision because the grapes develop and the quality improves but at some, uh, at some movement, you approach a, move, a, a movement where you can dream of ultimate beauty in a wine, but at the next step, it would turn into a catastrophe. And it's just so difficult and so risky to get to that point where you have still fantastic grapes, but not the catastrophe of the first unwelcome botrytis. Because in general, uh, you do make a lot of wines that are, are dry, and so you're not looking for botrytis flavors. That's right. Uh, we are known for our dry, dry wines. Nevertheless, uh, we take risks. We go as far as possible, and uh, we cannot decide what happens. So botrytis happens. But if it happens, we have to relax, wait, until the berries shrivel, until we can take the botrytis apart, that we can, can take each grape into the hand and uh, sort it into different parts, the healthy parts for, the, for dry wine, the shriveled botrytis parts for, for a sweet wine. That might take another three weeks. So if we are already late, it's possible that we have to wait another two or three weeks before making the ultimate wine, which is then on one side dry but rich, and on the other side a small quantity of a sweet wine. So at this point, you're quite famous for a number of things, but one of them is Gruner Veltliner, a great variety that you grow in the Comptal and on specifically some very good vineyard sites. But was it always the case that this area was known for Gruner Veltliner or... Uh, 
Was there an evolution? The, the history of the wine growing area in Langenlois, like everywhere else, was mixed plantings. Single varietal plantings uh, happened after the phylloxera. Before that, a vineyard was a cosmos of many different varieties and also of, of uh, varieties constantly in development because grapes have sex as much as humans and uh, the offspring of this joy is if a berry with a fertile seed falls down and a new, a new plant comes out and uh, if you don't have a tractor who gets rid of this plant if you work do everything by hand there is a new plant if the place is free the grower leaves a new plant and it's a new variety and you are constantly getting new varieties into the vineyard and if the if the grape tastes well you want to keep it you may even want to multiply it you take a piece of wood from that plant and make another plant of it or you make a layering make the you have a space of one meter which is free you take a branch put it into the earth that it makes roots uh, under the earth and leaves in the light and you get in a, another a, a second of this wine and then a third and a fourth and a fifth and that's how you varieties like for example St. Laurent were discovered by chance. Which has a relationship to Pinot Noir, I believe. St. Laurent is an offspring of Pinot Noir with an unknown stranger and Grüne Vetlina is an offspring of Tramina with, with another variety which we called now St. Georg's Rebe. We know the second parent now of Grüne Vetlina and have found one, one wine of, of the parent. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. That's quite new. <laughs> and do you feel that the, the vineyards uh, after Phylloxera became more rationalized in terms of how they were set up? The first revolution probably was plowing with, with horses, Then, the, which meant that uh, a vineyard was not more a chaotic system. And uh, it, it meant that you sometimes you hurt the vines, that you line up, that everything has to be straight and planted and organized. So it's a, a completely new spirit was introduced with plowing and with laboring with animals, and which later was replaced by mechanical tractors. But that, that was, of course, a a considerable revolution, which also meant that uh, vineyards had a certain lifespan and were replanted after 30, 40, 50 or 60 years. Whereas the very ancient vineyards usually were living endlessly. You could always renew the vineyard if one space was free, take... Uh, Just, just put something into the space or make a layering. So you, it was constantly rejuvenated. Whereas today, you throw out a vineyard and plant a new one. 
You have quite a bit of plannings of Gruner about Leaner today. Uh, was it a great Friday that was important for you to work with? Yes, it, it, it is the most important uh, grape variety in our area. It is a wonderful var variety. It, uh, um, it is a wonderful variety in the vineyard. It has thick skins. It's nice to eat. It makes a wonderful wine. And it makes a wine that doesn't get on your nerves. You can drink Grüne on whatever occasion, night and day, lunch and dinner, with all kinds of food where Italian, Spanish or French people drink red wine, uh, Austrians drinks, drink mature Grüne Wettliner. And uh, the more you drink it, the more you like it, usually. And uh, so it became the, the dominant uh, variety in our area. And uh, the Kamptal is one of the areas where the Grüne Wettlin is really perfect because it needs relatively warm days, cold nights, a healthy climate, um, and uh, well-trained soils, and uh, a little bit of chalk, a little bit of loam, but not too much, because it tends to get chlorosis. If it's very much chalk, it's better to grow a Pinot, Pinot Noir or a Chardonnay. But with, if the per conditions are perfect, the Grüne Wettliner is a wonderful friend. And what about Riesling? You make a little bit of that as well. The, the Riesling is better for the southwestern exposures, which are more open to the wind, which have less loam in, in the soil. So in our area, uh, it's, um, uh, it's a very good combination to plant Riesling on the southwestern sides and the uh, Grüne Wettliner in the, on the southeastern sides, so it's very complementary. One of the things I've seen on, on the label is the Lira, or the Lyre system of, of uh, trellising that you do. How, how did that come about, and what is that? Um, my father was very interested in, in, in vineyard management and in training system and in the architecture of the vineyard, and he developed the Brundelmeier training system. And in the 70s, at the University of Bordeaux, a research project was started where all the training systems in the world were planted. And uh, the follow-up was to measure everything, microclimate, and to vinify all the training systems separately. I followed that up, of course. That was very interesting. And for three consecutive years, Unfortunately, unfortunately, not the Brundelmeier system brought the best qualities, but a uh, unknown, complicated system with a large architecture of the wine, which was later on called the liar training systems, made the best wine. And since this was quite evident, That the, that the wines were wonderful. I started to transform vineyards in Langenlois to that system. The system means an opening up of the canopy, making better use of solar radiation on the one side. On the other side, it provides improved shading of the grapes. And this is particularly important 
important for sensitive grapes like Grüne Vetliner or Riesling, but also fine red wines like the Pinot Noir, that the fruit is not destroyed by aggressive sun in August or September between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., for example. So, like the human skin, the skin of the grapes loves mild light, light of the early morning and of the late evening, but not the aggressive sunlight during lunchtime. And you mentioned the skins. I've noticed some growers in, in your region of Austria have done more skin contact in terms of macerating with the skins and getting a, a bit more of a, a broader texture, a, a deeper, kind of almost fleshier wine. That's not something I really associate with Brunemeyer in terms of how the wines taste. What do you do when the grapes come in, the white grapes come into the winery? Uh, each, each grape, each vintage is unique. So uh, there's nothing where you can say we do that always. But as a wine grower, you have your taste, your personal taste. And uh, it's, I think, uh, a good approach to ask yourself, how would you like to drink the wine from those grapes? And in my case, I want a straightforward wine, which is fresh, not uh, too overblown, discreet, with, an, with a fresh acidity, but without aggressiveness, subdued, elegant. And usually we get that by careful and gentle handling of the grapes, cleanliness, uh, and usually a whole, a very slow whole cluster pressing is a, is a very good approach. Uh, I do not like destemming because it's, there's a pr brutality in it. I like to wait until all, all the parts, including the seeds, are mature so we can put the grapes directly into the press and then take the juice out. I say take the juice out, I don't say press, take the juice out very slowly like taking the grapes into your hand and keep it in your hands four, five, six, or even 10 or 12 hours and always applying a gentle pressure. And after these six hours or seven hours, uh, you have the juice out, but you have not done any harm. You have no rough tannins. If there are unripe berries, which are not soft, they, are, they stay even uncrushed. And I think this slow extraction leads to a very fine juice, which is very clear. In this way, we avoid lots of uh, filtration. And this makes the work in the cellar uh, very easy. We lose some percentages some percentage point from the yield, but the life in the cellar, the follow-up in the cellar, cellar becomes very easy. And what about malolactic conversion? Do you do that on the wine? Our, our cellar, we harvest usually very late, and our cellars are very 
cold, so malolactic fermentation doesn't uh, happen naturally, usually. But there are years when the acidities are aggressive. And we come out of a situation where Langenlois used to be an extremely cold area with really sometimes thin wines with high and aggressive acidity. So and from that time and from those cool vintages was developed the technique of putting chalk into the juice to reduce acidity, a practice that we do not like. Uh, a practice that we like is uh, malolactic fermentation, which means after the fermentation, keeping the wine at about 18 to 20 degrees centigrade. don't know how much Fahrenheit it, it is, but it's, it's not very warm, but it's not cool either. It's just the temperature where the bacteria can survive and, and do its jobs of, uh, job of fermenting aggressive malic acidity to smooth lactic acidity. The result of this can be a smooth and rich wine which lacks a little bit the edge for, for, of the malic acidity. So what I like to do very much If there is a cool vintage with high acidities, to split or to take the juice from a vineyard into two casks and keep one cask warm and do the malolactic fermentation there. And after the malolactic fermentation, blend again the two wines together so that we have the best of the two worlds uh, a little bit of malic acidity, just enough to have freshness, but not too much to have aggressiveness, and a little bit of a softer and silkier body, but not so that it runs too, too rich. The result should be a nice to drink wine with freshness, but not aggressiveness. And uh, it should show the variety, the year, and uh, the origin but not uh, the way you work in the, in the cellar. Yeah, because thinking of that, if I were to drink a wine like that, I don't know that I would be able to identify whether it had gone through Mallow or not if I were thinking from kind of a sommelier analytic view. It, it almost seems like uh, I, I might wonder and wonder and wonder, never quite knowing unless I asked you. Yeah. I, I would consider it as a mistake if a wine drinker says, ah, here I perceive a malolactic fermentation, or here I perceive a toasted acacia cask, or here I perceive a oak cask. All this would be a mistake in the vinification. In this way, we can learn from the great artists who work to such a perfection that you forget everything about technique. You just look at the result, you appreciate the result, which comes easily without any effort and without any thinking about the technique and about the labor behind it. You invest much labor to let labor, the labor input forget. So the end result should be easy and light and elegant and it should come without effort and without any memory of the work invested. 
I found your wines. I've I've had a chance to try a few um, moderately old and older vintages, which has been really wonderful. And I've found them, especially maybe more recently, to be sort of jumpy in the beginning of their life when they're first released. The whites, I mean, a real a zing, as a lift, a very strong energy lift. Um, still restrained in that kind of Brunemeyer way, not 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 harsh, nothing like that. And then, as I've noticed, they've gotten older. They they still have that kind of silver thread that runs through them that I recognize so much of when they were younger, kind of a silvery shimmer. And then they get more of that waxy kind of lanolin, sometimes kind of brown seed pod, almost kind of Chinese spice character, depending on the vineyard. How do you see the wines as aging? And do you think that they're the same wine, or have you changed over time? You know, if I think about a '92. Uh, you know, wine from your you, and and if I think about uh, 2012, do you think that uh, the 92 would have tasted like the 12 when it was young, or not? Has there been slight change in style? Basically, not from the idea. Of course, each vintage is different, uh, but uh, what, what stays the same that we like to avoid pumping. We use the uh, level difference in the cellar that the grapes come high uh, and the grapes go to the press. From the press, without pumping, it goes down to the first cellar for another pre-clarification and from there down to the cellar for maturity. And we have today between arrival of the grapes and the, mature, the cellar where the wood is maturing, a difference of 15 meters. Oh, oh that's quite a bit. It's been so on, on top of it, uh, under a, a roof of solar panels, we uh, get in the grapes, sort the grapes, and from there the press, clarification, and so, from, so it flows from up and down, and we avoid pumping, and we keep the CO2 from the fermentation. We do not try to get rid of it. The cellar is cold, so the, the, the CO2 stays in the cask. And this is irritating for many wine drinkers that in the young wine there may be some CO2. But if I would... It is very easy to get rid of the CO2, but... Uh, if, if I leave it out, I'm also uh, losing a natural preservative because uh, CO2 is there from the fermentation. It, it helps preserve the wine. It fixes aromas. And for those, sometimes in, in the summer, it's very nice to drink the young wine with a little bit of CO2. If you don't like it, it's a very good idea to decant it. Some of our best vineyards, you can drink them young, they are beautiful, but you better do and putting them into a carafe and give it a little bit of air to get rid of the first touch of CO2. And when they are under cork and five or ten years old, it just gets away and uh, integrates and uh, helps helps also in the in the maturing process. I prefer by the way, maturing to aging, and I prefer mature to old. 
Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, me too, actually. Uh, especially as I just had a birthday. Uh, uh, congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Getting more mature. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, closer to uh, closer to forty than I was uh, a few days ago. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, one of the other things I I sort of recognize about the wines of Brunemeyer, which I should say I really like the wines of Brunemeyer, and I I think that they they have a light touch to them, sort of they sort of touch you without grabbing you, you know, and they uh, through that means it feels like more uh, engaging sometimes. They have a what I think of as kind of a noble character, a restraint to them, but they also have kind of an airy texture, quite often the whites, where I feel like even in a, a vineyard like the Helglinstein, where I associate some other producers' wines with so much density from that vineyard, I feel like there's m almost more space within the texture of your wines uh, when you make a wine from that vineyard. Is that partly... A harvest issue? Is it partly a yield issue? Is it winemaking? Do you think that your yields are different than your neighbors in that in that area? Or do you think you're harvesting a little earlier? We try to keep the right proportions. Too much yield is a bad thing, but also too little yield doesn't make because a wine can be too big, and the wine can be too lean and uh, too thin. So, whatever you do, I think it's wise to look for the right proportion. And if the yield is too high, to cut away some of the grapes. Or even better, we prefer cutting into the grapes. And uh, uh, so, if there are, if there is an abundance of grapes, make the grapes smaller so that we have many smaller grapes. Which where we have less risk of uh, of prothritis and uh, a larger surface of the grape. So when you say make the grapes smaller, do you mean that you cut away bunches and leave fewer bunches on the vine, or which we, we just cut into the middle of the grape after the flowering season when they are about uh, three, four, five millimeters large, and that means that a, a, a mature Grüne Veltliner grape is relatively heavy and you risk that it compresses the berries in the middle and this compressed berry might start to extract some juice and this juice might start to rot and give unelegant flavors. And in order to avoid that, if we cut into the middle of the grapes, the grape always stays, keeps an open structure. Well, with, with a good aeration in the middle. And these grapes, you can keep till November and they stay healthy. That's a, a grape by grape process, mm -hmm. in a sense, to go in. So, you know, one time I was working as a sommelier and I saw a 1983 Brunemeyer Auslese. And my knowledge of the of Brunemeyer was that the wines are always dry. I was I've always tried to dry wines from Brunemeyer, and uh, so I assumed it was an Alsace Trocken kind of wine. And I recommended it to a guest and for his fish, and he asked me if it was dry, and I said, oh, "Of course, of course." And then we brought it out and opened it. And it was quite sweet, and I had to take it back and get him something else because I I didn't know that. But that's not a wine I've encountered very often. Do you make uh, still the Alsace and? If you do, you know what's the, what's the difference between the, the regular production? 
It's quite rare because uh, you're completely right that basically we try to ferment all wines completely. But if you harvest late, you take risk and you might get impotritis and you get very rich grapes. And in that case, we accept what we get and we put the grapes and the juice into the press and ferment it. It's cold and it may stay sweet. And uh, in that case, uh, if it doesn't ferment completely, and usually it starts, it, uh, the fermentation stops around 12 or 13 or, or 13 and a half alcohol, and the rest is residual sugar. If that happens now, we add the designation like Auslese, Bärenauslese, or Trockenbärenauslese, so we add something or even what December is, if it's harvested in, the, in December. And this should say the consumer, attention, this is sweet. It's also on, on the label, because you don't find the trocken. On all our wines, you find trocken. If you don't find trocken, if you find süß, it is not trocken. <laughs> so, uh, but usually you don't, uh, you're not that careful, so we make another sign like Auslese, Bernauslese, or Trockenbernauslese. But these are small quantities. For, for example, from the Lamm, uh, we make all three years a one 300 liter cask of a sweet wine for Bernauslese or Trockenbernauslese. You also make some really good sparkling wine, some of my favorites from Austria. How did that get going? How did you start to decide to do sparkling? Well, that uh, was the influence of my wife. My wife, Itwish, I married her in 1980, I grew up in France, and her favorite drink was champagne. And when she moved to Langenlois, and you are in a wine growers village, and you have to buy champagne. Well, I love champagne too, uh, but I love uh, also vintages and origins and, you know, And uh, as a wine grower, you have a valuable land, but uh, the income is, is good enough, so you, uh, you can buy uh, what you want. But very, very expensive champagne is still very expensive. <laughs> so we thought about uh, the pro production of our own spa sparkling wine. And the natural situation of the Kamptal is very good for that, because we have a cool situation we can harvest very late, the grapes stay uh, very healthy, and uh, September, October, and November are the driest months of the year, so we, uh, we, uh, we have very good conditions for straightforward basic wines for the sparkling wine. So the first one we made in 89, and since 89, ever since each year we made a sparkling wine, and add it later onto an extra brut and a brut rosé, which we make from, uh, from our uh, dominant red grapes, Pinot Noir, St. Laurent, and Zweigelt. And when I tasted it, it tastes like a pretty sophisticated sparkling wine. In a method wise, are you, I would imagine it's not like gyro palettes. I would imagine someone's probably doing some hand riddling there or something. The, the the hand labor is part of our identity, and uh, of course we do 100% hand harvesting and also hand riddling. So all bottles are riddled by hand, which means uh, each bottle is slightly different to each other. <laughs> so it's, 
you are you may be lucky, you may be less lucky. There's natural cork involved. There's hand riddling, and uh, but I like it that way. But in general, how do you find the different sparkling wines to age, and, and when would you open them? As long as they are on the lease in our cellar, uh, they can age or mature endlessly. As soon as we open them, take out the lees and disgorge them, you have to be careful. The best drinking age after disgorging is approximately one year. In, after one year, it's mature. It improves also the second year. It may improve the third year. But in the third year, you start getting bottle differences. And in the fourth year, you may have one bottle which is magnificent and the next bottle you, which might feel tired and you have lost CO2 and you have lost some of your, your potential bubbles. So the disgorgement date is very important. And we print it on the label. So for your listeners, if you turn the label, the, you can see Deck 0813 means disgorged August 2013. And from there you can calculate when best to drink your sparkling wine. Now, you said your cellar is uh, quite cold, but is it cold enough for sparkling wine? I know with sparkling wine, sometimes it's helpful to have really cold cellars. Did you have to add cellars or? The, the average year temperature is uh, slightly below 10 degrees centigrade. So it is also the temperature of the deep cellars. And it's a perfect, it's a perfect temperature for storing white wines, sparkling wines, all the wines that should stay fresh. So, so you didn't have to add new facilities then with the sparkling? No, we we had to add new facilities for the sparkling because the aim was always to get a mature spark, sparkling wine. And uh, uh, experimenting, we found out that three years on the lease is magnificent. You get a high surplus waiting the first three years. It gets much more mature and soft and rich and smooth. It also improves in the fourth year and in the fifth year, but there is a trade-off because, of course, each year you wait it involves a lot of, lot of room, of storage room, of capital, of expenditure. So the storing is very, very expensive. So three years was the best uh, compromise, but three years means three harvests instead. That's a lot. So we we needed space. I, I, I had to rent a cellar. I asked our neighbor whether I could store in his cellar. And when he retired, he offered me his cellar and his vineyards for against the rent. Oh, okay. And this gentleman was, by the way, the successor of Mr. Zweigelt. So that was also the birth of our rosé sparkling wine, because suddenly I had an abundance of red grapes. And uh, my wife was also dreaming of, of having a rosé sparkling wine. So, so 
So that's the chance. And since that time, we make uh, a rosé sparkling wine, which is a blend of the Zweigelt, St. Laurent and Pinot Noir, which we already had. Because Zweigel is named after someone, a person that existed at one time. Exactly. It's the Zweigelt, uh, whereas the, the St. Laurent is a natural cross in the vineyard. The Zweigelt was a cross from the, from the 30s by the Professor Zweigelt who made a cross of the two most important Austrian red grapes, the Blaufränkisch and the St. Laurent, and the Zweigel grapes has a little bit the advantages of both varieties. And so you acquired some Zweigelt vines as well as the cellar, and you do make some reds. You make a Zweigelt, and what is that like to handle? It's very, very nice. It has a good cherry fruit. It's beautiful. It's, it's a wonderful rosé. And it's a very, very nice uh, red wine, very drinkable, uh, very good with food, a very good company with, with Grüner Wettliner. So it's great to have Grüner Wettliner and Zweigelt. Wonderful. And you also make a Pinot Noir, which I've had. How did that come about that you started with Pinot? Well, Pinot Noir was the favorite grape of my mother. So you see the influence, the wife said, for the chair. And uh, so my father planted Pinot Noir. And also with a good reason, because on the eastern uh, sides of the hills, we have Loess and Loam. And the Loess has approximately 30% chalk, sometimes more. And if the chalk content gets very high, the Grüne Wettliner suffers. Whereas a Pinot Noir loves the chalk. So we can uh, split the vineyards. If the chalk content goes very high, we rather plant one of the Pinots. If the chalk content is somewhere between 20 and 30 percent, it's wonderful for the Grüne Wettliner. And in our village, we have really an abundance of different soils. All 100 or 200 meters, the soil type change, changes. So it is very important to adapt uh, the variety to the specific uh, soil type of the vineyard. And you have some famous vineyards like uh, Lahm and Helgenstein. Do you have red grapes planted in any of those? On the hottest part of the Heiligenstein, the lower part, the risk is very high that with climatic warming, The, it might one day be too warm for the Riesling, that the Riesling might lose its elegance and freshness. So we have started there with an experimental vineyard where we planted many different later maturing grapes. And from those grapes, we found that in this specific situation, the Cabernet Franc did very well. So the Cabernet Franc is much more heat resistant and later later maturing than the Riesling, also later maturing and more heat resisting than a Pinot Noir or a Zweigelt. So this would be an option if climatic warming goes on. And so we planted more of the Cabernet Franc just to get one cask of 2,500 liters full to have a fermentation vat and to get more experience about that. So today on the Heiligenstein we have Rieslings up to nearly 100 year old plants and Cabernet Franc. And talking about manual labor, you have about 80 hectares. 
you have people putting a hole into grape by grape basis uh, sometimes, and you're doing hand riddling. I mean, how big is the team that that implies? How many people work for you? All year round, we are pro we are twenty twenty five with with a constant team who uh, organize everything, and for the spring season where we have much work, and for the harvesting season, which uh, starts in September and finishes in December, we are 60, 70 people at maximum. And do they come back every year, or is it more transitory? They come uh, uh, back every year, and if someone retires, usually the cousin applies as well. So it is, it is wonderful to have experienced harvest uh, helper who are of course allowed to test the grapes and who, who are very important in doing a selective selective harvesting no, we, we, we usually we don't take out 100% of the grapes but we take for example 50% of the grapes for the sparkling wine just if the window for the sparkling wine is the best so that the acidity is fresh but not aggressive and the rest of the grapes gets a longer hanging time becomes rich and uh, more f f uh, full-bodied but not over mature wine someone who worked with you or at least of whom you became aware uh, was mike moosebrucker who's now at Schloss skobelsberg how did how did you meet Well, Michael, uh, uh, I met Michael as a customer. His family was running one of the best restaurants and hotels in Austria. And uh, he was the oldest son. So the plan of his family was that he would take over. But his heart was always in the wine. So he became the wine uh, buyer and he constantly came up with questions concerning the wine. He traveled in the wine country. He started to work in wineries. And after two years being in the area, he told me, Willi, I don't want to go home. I want to stay here in the vineyards. I want to found a winery. And uh, well, here is one offer of a winery, which is given. Shall we look? Shall I look it up together? And we had a look at that winery, and it was no good at all. It was a frosty situation, and the buildings, building was not good. But now I knew that Michi was very motivated. That he is a very organized, extremely quality-oriented guy. And as life happens, a couple of weeks later, a miracle happens. The oldest and most fantastic property in the area comes from the Cistercian monks, which planted in the 12th century the first vineyards and uh, took over the Schloss Gobelsburg property and, and the monks worked these vineyards till 19, 1988, I think. And were producing fantastic wines that uh, that I collected when I was a young wine grower. So uh, some of the of the of the of the Kobelsburg, uh, wines st uh, still in our winery. And then the winemaker of uh, of Kobelsburg uh, became abbot of the monastery. He had to move away, 
the Abbey of Zwettl, who is pro the proprietor of the vineyard, is one hour away. And he couldn't keep on running the, the vineyard. They have 1,500 hectares of wood. They have a school to run, so they have, they have many things to do. And they gave it to a manager who had a share on the profit, but he didn't have a big heart for the vineyards. So he started off making big profits, and then slowly the quality went down and the consumer realized Gobelsburg isn't anymore what it used to be, and then they started losing the market. And uh, I probably said some on some occasions that it's a shame that Gobelsburg doesn't produce a better wine. And one day... Uh, the abbot found me and said, hey, Mr. Bründelm, I hear that you don't like our wines. You said somewhere it's not, it's not good anymore. I said, oh, Mr. Abbott, what's your, what's, what's your opinion on that? So, I confess. <laughs> Did you tell me you confess? <laughs> Uh, he said, well, he said he, he, he doesn't like it either, and he, he tastes it uh, daily because they, they drink it uh, at the ceremony, at the mess. And uh, they have also a little restaurant in the, in the monastery, and they don't like the quality anymore, and they want to change it. But they couldn't uh, work it anymore themselves. There are only 27 monks left and they have so many things to do. So they wouldn't do the vineyard anymore. So they think about renting it away and whether I am interested or know someone who is interested. And so that was a miracle that Michi Mosbrugger told me that uh, he's interested in running a vineyard. So I said, well... <laughs> We're coming. <laughs> and uh, I went to the monastery with Michi Mosbrugger into that building of the 12th century, the monks sitting around in the interview and said, Michi Mosbrugger, who is this young gentleman? We know Mr. Bründelmeier, but we don't yet know this young gentleman. Oh, that's Mr. Mosbrugger from Lech. And, well, do you know the priest of Lech? And so <laughs> And, uh, well, finally... Uh, We came after a couple of weeks with a contract that uh, the surgeons keep the property, but they rent it for 60 years, and uh, which was a very nice contract because it was good for everyone. And the idea behind it was to preserve the cultural heritage of the Schloss Gobelsburg and their land. And uh, Michi Mosbrugger certainly was uh, in his wonderful and slow and conservative ways would be the best man to do that. And he did, since 1996, a magnificent job of restoring that great property. What about in your own family? You have two sons and a daughter. Have you seen, in the way that you brought Mickey along through winemaking, have you found that same response with your children? Yes, the, the, my oldest son, Vincent, has uh, started two years ago to uh, work in a, our winery. Like myself, he has also worked in Burgundy. He's also worked in Alsace. <laughs> And uh, for truly getting 100% mot motivation, the best thing is to have a vineyard. And now, uh, in, uh, two years ago, after my mother has died, she left the kids some money. And Vincent said, I asked the kids, what are you going to do with that money? Vincent said, 
I want to buy a vineyard. And I thought, wonderful. I can support you in whatever way. You can buy a vineyard on the market or you can buy any vineyard from me for the price that I ever paid now or 30 years ago or whenever. So vineyards, Vincent started to study all our vineyards for its value, for its character, for the price I had got it. <laughs> And finally he came with the choice of an old Grüne Vetline from the Spiegel Vineyard, which was part of our Grüne Vetline Alte Reben old wines. And uh, with not very much money, he had one hectare of this magnificent vineyard. Uh, and since two, two years ago, he makes his own vineyard. He works the vineyard and makes his own vinification uh, from that vineyard, makes a, his own label and has much fun with it. This, by the way, <laughs> we are wine growers who have lots of fun. I know many wine growers all over the world and also in the traditional French areas. I have many friends there, but I can I must confess that we have more fun with that richness of different soils and varieties. We have more possibilities to play around, to risk something, sometimes to have a magnificent wine, something to lose a little bit. But uh, the variety is very, very joyful. Removing the Spiegel vineyard from the Alta Raben, did that change the character of the Alta Raben more recently? Uh, it, it was a loss, but the loss was uh, made up from from other old vineyards. For for me, the, the Alte Reben are 50 years and more. But that means plantings from the 50s, and there's also an abundance of, uh, of plantings uh, of, of the 50s. So there is enough around. And uh, the Alte Reben is not a single vineyard. It just means the oldest vin vineyards from our village uh, in an assembly, cooler sites and warmer sites, so that here the wine grow has a, the possibility to compose the Grüne Vitlina he's dreaming of. And losing the Spiegel is losing a very important vineyard. But in 1998, we already lost the Käferberg, and now we lost the Spiegel. But there are other fantastic vineyards that compose the Alte Reben, and I think the 2012 is better than ever. Maybe my favorite, Alte, Grüne Veltliner Alte Reben. So that's interesting in that you have a, a Grüne Veltliner that you blend different vineyards, but you also have Grüne Veltliner from specific vineyard sites like you make a Gruner Veltliner uh, lamb and what is that a different experience for you for picking one vineyard and making that into a wine versus thinking about how you're going to put different vineyards together yes it's uh, it's, it's quite different because in a single vineyard you are servant of the vineyard you are uh, the serviceman for the boss And the vineyard is a boss. So you bring the best possible grapes from this single situation to the cask. But you accept whatever you get. And we have very cool situations, like the, the coolest one being the Langenleuserberg Vogelsang, which is open to the southwest, very open to the cool winds, with small berries, extremely dry, 
relatively light. And this, and from the Bergvogelsang, four miles eastwards, there's a lamb, which is the richest of our Grüne Veltliner, which is very warm, which is very rich, which is soft, had completely different character, and we have accepted that. So if I like an intermediate Grüne Veltliner, a well-balanced Grüne Veltliner, it's not the best idea to make single vineyard, because in single vineyard you work with characters. You accept that the vineyard has its character and you work to keep this character. So and even if you dislike the extremely dry structured wines, you say, no, this is the character of the vineyard. I am servant of the character. I do that and try to get the best out of this single vineyard. Whereas if you make a vineyard plant, you can work in the direction of your personal preference. So it's interesting to me that you have in your Vinotech wine back to 47. We so rarely hear about the different vintages of, you know, before the 90s, really, in Austria. So, you know, drinking the wines in your cellar and then having worked at the winery you know, having taken it over in 81 and worked there before that. What are some of the vintages over time in that region that have really stood out for you? Well, the very first vintage, 47, was, was an, an, an excellent vintage, followed by many others. Uh, um, I experienced a miracle with a very warm 59 uh, vintage. See, many colleagues uh, say, and uh, in, in many books you read, that for maturing you need in the Riesling lots of acidity. But then we were tasting the 59 Heiligenstein Riesling. It was a miracle of freshness and of delicacy. And I analyzed it, and it had just slightly a little, little bit above 5 gram acidity. So it had very low acidity, but it tasted fresh as yesterday. So we found out that high acidity is not absolutely necessary for, for maturing, that there are other fine structures which help uh, in maturing. And uh, the Heilingstein is famous of being not very open in the first years, but evolving in a very slow and elegant and aristocratic way. What are some of the vintages since 59 that have caught your eye? Yes, uh, then some of the cooler vintage produce uh, uh, fantastic wines. A, a great, well-known vintage, of course, also in Langenlois would be 61. Big wine, 69. Big vintage, 71. Very refined vintage 73. Um, vintage with high, higher acidity, but very noble 75. A very good and rich vintage 79. This, this was, by the way, the first time we sent a great mature Grüne Vetliner to New York. Was a 70, was a 79 where we had 150 bottles which were sold about 15 years ago in tasting classes for $35 of each 
tasting class, but the wine was was fantastic, and uh, nobody knew it at that time. So this contributed uh, contributed to make uh, to bring interest to the variety of Grüne Veltliner. So '79. Then uh, very rich but softer vintage was '83. With some of the of with with sweet wines with very high maturity, but nevertheless a very good vintage. So that was '83. In '85, excellent with both uh, fresh acidity and good concentration. '86, the first year where it started to be a little bit on the very very mature edge. So we started to think, do we always want that high maturity? So in '86 we started to think that higher maturity could mean a, a problem. So that was followed by vintages like '2000 uh, or '2003 where we had very mature grapes, but we started to think about um, the canopy management and about shading the grapes, not to expose them to direct sunlight. And we were learning and, and studying uh, the situation. But uh, well, the, the 2003, for example, and the 2000, they, had, they didn't have a good press, but today from these best vineyards, from these hillside vineyards. The wines are magnificent. I love them very much. They don't have high acidity, but they have good freshness and elegance. A very uh, good uh, vintage uh, with Botrytis was 1998, whereas in our, in, in our winery I didn't like the 2001 which was a vintage very high acidity. And in that year, I made the mistake of keeping some botrytis uh, in the cuvee to add more body. And this was, no, this was not good for our wines. We had very good points with a young wine. We had some of the, of the uh, ratings were the highest we ever had. But if you try it today, the 2001s have lost elegance. So that teach me that for our hillside vineyards, you rather work with 100% healthy grapes and make a separate wine out of the shriveled grapes. So, well, then uh, a, a year with high acidity, but very good elegance was 2004. 2006, we had a magnificent fall, very, very rich, very rich wines. 2000, then a succession of, of, of good vintage. 2007, a warmer vintage. 2008, a cooler vintage, but with elegant fruit. 2009, again a warmer vintage with fully ripe, healthy grapes. 2010, a cool, high acidity vintage with a very elegant wine on the top end. So the basic wines, a little bit aggressive. That was one of the year where we made this approach of 50% malolactic fermentation. And the result was very good. 2011, again, a warm year with very healthy grapes that uh, at the moment, very discreet, but I'm very optimistic about the maturing capabilities. 
2012 Perfect, Perfect Grapes uh, in all aspects. Healthy maturity is good. Uh, acidity fresh but not excessive. And 2013 against the vintage with its high, high acidity. Very good for the sparkling wine. Again, in the basic Grüne Vetlina and recently 50% malolactic fermentation just to break the aggressiveness of the acidity and uh, very concentrated on the high end and of the, on the late harvested. And again, the f after 2009, again, some sweet wines. We didn't have a sweet wine in 2011 and 2010, but in 2013. So in terms of the white wines that you make, when should I think about opening one of those? When, when do you usually enjoy to drink them? 2000, 2000 years ago, Dioscorides said, and it's uh, written in a book which uh, is uh, at the Viennese National Bibliothek. So Dioscorides wrote that wine should be drunk after approximately seven years. And I think that's in many cases, that's not a bad idea. Austrians usually drink the Grüne Vettina extremely young. So uh, we haven't yet bottled yet the Austrian. Oh, when, when do we get a new wine? So that's really a plague. It's terrible. <laughs> uh, but it's, it has a certain charm. The young Grüne Vettina is something very fresh, something very nice. And uh, the, the, the fresh fruit is beautiful. And after that first uh, charm of the young wine, the wine becomes more discreet, more subdued, but better together with food. And uh, at home, we usually drink wine with food. So the wine from the first year is not the best choice with the food, but if it has a couple of years. And very often after approximately six, seven or eight years, it shows wonderfully, it still has a freshness and it also shows some signs of development, some interesting new aspects. Uh, it has gained uh, richness, deepness and character. So it's a beautiful time to drink and it's uh, very often I drink wine around seven years. Unfortunately, that's the time when nobody is drinking them. People drink it either extremely young or then they become collectors and keep it eternally until it's very, very special. I don't know whether they are better after 30 years. I doubt it. Sometimes we have magnificent bottles that are 30 years old, but as an average, I would never recommend my friends to stored 30, 40, 50 years. For us, it's an obligation, it's, a, it, it's, it's part of our culture, but for drinking it for pleasure, I rather drink it after seven years. And what about the importation in the United States? You mentioned you had some wine come over from the 79 vintage. Uh, now, for several years, you've been represented by Terry Thies, mm -hmm. who's well known for German and Austrian wines, but I think he got involved with your estate as he was building the Austrian collection that he eventually put together. When did you first meet him? What was he like at the time? Well, the first time I, I remember him coming in, a very funny guy, 
just looked funny and he talked funny <laughs> and he asked me to to, to 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 taste our wines. He comes from America, is involved in wine buying and whether I uh, whether I mind that he tastes his wine but doesn't buy it, he just wants to taste it. So yeah, why <laughs> come in and uh, I thought he's witty and that he tastes very well. So I liked him. And uh, then he said goodbye. And uh, uh, next year he came and organized uh, a tasting and then he started uh, seriously to assemble wines for a catalog and assembled uh, his first Austrian portfolio. That was a big adventure for Terry and for us. And uh, so since that time uh, I'm going along with Terry had many great tastings with him and much fun with him. So I like him very much. And do you feel that the situation for Austrian wine has improved over that same period of time and in the international markets? I, I think the Austrian growers did a uh, great job in, uh, in the last 20 years. We were lucky that a climatic warming was in our favor. And uh, but I also think that we did a good job. We have uh, quite a severe wine law. We have young wine growers who are with high ambitions, and uh, I think uh, we realize uh, the potential of the vineyards now and uh, are, are going on, are move, moving on. Over the course of you know what's a pretty long winemaking, you've done over thirty-three vintages, the family estate. There's the eighty-five issue with other producers that weren't you that was a problem for Austrian wine in the market there was the rise of points and uh, the desire for bigger flavors there was a push towards red wines for the French paradox in the wake of that what do you think has been um, frustrating to you over the years that was you know something that you didn't like we uh, in with, with Brundelmeier, we always had uh, wine lovers who appreciate good wine, but which are not label drinkers. So, uh, if the label is important, there are other wines in the world where which are more expensive, and uh, so we have regular customs uh, customers who don't follow as much the, the, the trends, but just want a great wine with their food. And I also think the association of uh, wine with food provides the stability to us. Because if you drink wine for its own sake, on rare occasion, it's not a real involvement. A real involvement is if wine takes part in your daily life. And that's if you eat, you drink. If you drink, you eat. And uh, this brings regularity. And uh, in Austria, we have uh, a good food culture, followed by, by local wines. And this gives us as, as a very sta stable backbone, notwithstanding what's just the, the fashion of the years. Willy Brundermeier, he's making wine as a part of every day. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for tasting with me and, and thanks for, for, for the nice talk. Willie Brundermeier of the Brundermeier Winery in the Kamptal of Austria. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. 
Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L-drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.